Uh, it's good to be thinking, as Charlie was saying, we're a short series looking forward to the coronation that is coming up, but thinking about the Lord Jesus as the King of Kings. And this day, the day of Pentecost that's being described here in Acts chapter 2, was the day when that, in a sense, was announced publicly to the world that he was king, he was risen from the dead. So as we turn to this passage, uh, let me pray together, and then we'll be looking at it. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, help us so to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through patience and the comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and forever hold fast the hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So last week, then, we were in the first part of this chapter, verses 1 to 21. And you remember, if you were here last Sunday evening, that I invited you to imagine yourselves uh, in Jerusalem on that day, among those crowds there, probably in the temple courts on that day of Pentecost. And you would have witnessed, as we saw then, a triple miracle, a wind, a noise of a roaring hurricane of wind, flames of fire, and then the wonders of God being spoken about in loud, multiple languages. And then we listened as Peter, the apostle, explained what all this means in answer to their question, which was a very obvious question in verse 12, what does all this mean? And what we learned last week was that this means basically three things. In the first part of Peter's speech there, in verses 16 to 21, if you can just quickly look at it, first of all, it means that God has poured out his Spirit, as he promised back in the Scriptures. And Peter quotes from the prophet Joel, uh, that now everyone among God's people, men and women, can speak out for God The word is prophesy. God has poured out his spirit. And then secondly, that if God has poured out his spirit, if that age has come, then the Lord is king. The kingdom of God has come through the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, as we came to our climax next Sunday evening, if the Lord is king, then the king is there to keep us safe. There is salvation for all who call on him. Salvation from the day of the Lord's judgment on all wickedness and evil. For whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's verse 21, and that's where we got to last week. But hang on a minute, Peter. I mean, aren't you missing something? I mean, what about the Messiah? I mean, surely it was only supposed to be that it would be when the Messiah had come that all those prophecies about the Spirit of God being poured out and the kingdom of God coming and so on, that's when they would be fulfilled, isn't it? So if you're telling us that that's now what's happening, Spirit of God has come, kingdom of God has come, then where is he? Where's the Messiah? Where's our king? Ah, says Peter, precisely. You're absolutely right. But remember Jesus? What, Jesus of Nazareth? Well, yes, of course they did. As I said last week, probably most of this crowd had been around for several weeks. And the most scandalous event of recent weeks, the horror of that Passover weekend just passed, when was when a carpenter's son from Nazareth had been crucified by Roman soldiers just outside the city. You mean that, Jesus? Yes. And you know all about the amazing miracles that he had done all as a sign and proof that God was with him, as 
Peter says there, you can see in verse 22, and indeed they did. Because, as I said, probably many of that crowd who were there in the day of Pentecost would have been there in Jerusalem a few weeks earlier. They'd probably, some of them at least, been among the crowds that had cheered Jesus into Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday. They'd have heard from all the other residents of Judea and Galilee about these wonderful things that this Jesus had done. Maybe they'd witnessed some of them themselves. But then, what did you do to him? A few days later, yeah, that's right. You went along with those corrupt leaders of your own people. You went along with that blatant injustice of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and you spiked him on a cross where he died in agony. And he died, those of you who were there, you'll remember, he died with a notice above his head, nailed up there, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it was written there by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. It was denounced, of course, by your leaders, but it was the truth. He was the Messiah, the son of David, the king that you cheered and acclaimed a few days earlier. But he died. He died at your hands. And you know it because you were there. You saw it happen. You pushed him through death's door. And then you locked it and sealed it shut behind him. So yes, the king is dead. Or at least this king, King Jesus, certainly was dead. And that's the first point we have to take note of in our passage this evening. In fact, we need to linger just a little bit longer on verse 23, as you can see it there in the text, before we go on to what Peter is going to come to next. Because the way Peter puts his point here is very interesting and quite significant. Just look carefully at what he says there in that verse. He says, this man, meaning of course Jesus, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, the first thing to notice there is that King Jesus was unquestionably dead. I mean, just in case, just in case anybody thought then, as people have still sometimes tried to say now, that somehow Jesus didn't really die. He just kind of swooned on the cross because it was a bit sore. But then he revived later in the tomb, pushed the stone aside and walked out somehow, as if. It's an incredible story, but it's still hell. But it just doesn't hold water. He was crucified by Roman soldiers who knew their job, and you didn't survive crucifixion. And in any case, if you'd been among that crowd, you'd seen it. You'd seen his body taken down, wrapped up tightly. You knew that he'd been taken off to a tomb and sealed there. You knew Jesus was dead. The king is dead. But who did it? Who was responsible for this terrible death? Well, look again there at verse 23, because three parties are actually named. Two are very clear. First of all, you, says Peter. He doesn't pull any punches, does he? He doesn't soften the point. You put him to death. And if you were in that crowd, maybe you remember yelling out on that awful Friday, crucify him, crucify him. You put him to death. 
But of course, there's another party because you needed the collusion of the Roman authorities, who are the second party in the action. Wicked men, as it says on there, is literally lawless men. That is, Gentiles who were not subject to Israel's law of the Old Testament. The Roman soldiers, Pontius Pilate, yes, they too, they bore their share of the blame. Jews and Gentiles, all humanity was there, implicated, complicit in the crucifixion of the Messiah, the King. But someone else was there too. Did you see how Peter begins in verse 23? He says, all of this happened by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This most evil of all events in human history took place within the eternal sovereign purposes of God. God knew. God planned. God had all this in mind from all eternity. And by God, I mean God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the God of the Scriptures, the living Lord God. This is actually a very important point to try to grasp, even though it's a mystery that's quite hard to get our heads around, at least I find that. And yet, this is actually where we have to come. I mean, come to the cross. When we wrestle with that awful problem we have as human beings, the problem of evil in our world, how do we hold together in our heads the fact of evil, which is there, we see it every day, and the goodness and the sovereignty of God? And ultimately, you can only bring that question together at the foot of the cross. I don't know if you were here at All Souls on Good Friday. I expect some of you were to the uh, three-hour service. And if you were, you remember the point that Charlie, our rector, made in his meditations on John's account of the crucifixion in John's Gospel, chapter 18 and 19. And Charlie asked this same question repeatedly, who was responsible for this death? And the ultimate answer is, God himself was in charge on that day. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even though, of course, the human agents, those who'd done it, were guilty, morally accountable for their own wicked choices, decisions, and actions. But here's the thing, that God built the evil and the injustice of Good Friday into God's own good and righteous plan for the salvation of the world. See, that's the double truth of the cross. And we have to hold these two things together, even though it's hard. Not allow one to override or diminish the other. What I mean by that is this, that the fact that human beings achieved their murderous will on Jesus, they did what they wanted to do to him, didn't mean that God was impotent, that God was powerless to do anything about it. But equally, The fact that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit planned and foresaw all that took place on that day did not mean that the human perpetrators were innocent of any personal wrongdoing because they were just puppets on a string. No, they were fully responsible for their motives and their actions. You see, this this is the key point that Peter is expressing here as we dig into it. That the living God, 
that God Almighty, God has the power to bring what is evil in itself into subjection to his own gracious, redemptive plan and purpose. It serves his plan. And that truth, God's sovereignty over evil, even in that sense making evil subject to his redemptive purposes, that truth is actually woven through the whole of the Bible story. It comes very early. It's actually in the book of Genesis. Here is Joseph speaking to his brothers uh, after he'd been reconciled with them. This is, this is the, the brothers who had decided they wanted to murder him, but sort of forgot, left him down a pit, and then decided to sell him instead, sold their own brother into slavery. That's evil in every possible way. But God says, Joseph says to them, you intended to harm me. Literally, that is, you intended evil. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And you see, that is exactly what took place at the cross, only in an infinitely greater scale and scope. The cross is the place where supremely the utter goodness and sovereignty of God overcame, absorbed the utter evil of sin and rebellion and actually made it the means of its own defeat and destruction. That's the power of the cross that we were singing about a few minutes ago. It's more difficult to get into poetry and sing it, but it's also the power of the cross. Let me indulge in just a a little shameless bit of self-quotation, because some time ago I wrote a book called The God I Don't Understand, uh, and it reflects, among other things, on this particular point. Uh, And here's one of the things that I tried to say, uh, and I'm now quoting, that the cross was the worst that human evil and rebellion against God could do. Think about it. There were inflamed fanatics, corrupt religious leaders, lying witnesses, political conspiracies, vested interest, nationalist rage, morally bankrupt judicial process, excruciating torture, public shame, taunting mockery. And even among the friends of Jesus, there was treachery, betrayal, denial, cowardice. All the powers of evil, satanic and human, were ranged against Jesus Christ and hurled their worst at him. But Jesus transformed all this into the triumph of divine love, absorbing and defeating it simultaneously. But the crucial point is this, that not only did Jesus defeat all the powers of evil, he made them into the agents of his victory and their own defeat. He turned evil against itself, to its own ultimate destruction. If it's not too irreverent to say so, the cross was God's supreme judo. In the person of his son, he took all that sin and evil, human and satanic, could hurl at him and turned it back to its own ultimate destruction. And there's more. That wasn't just what happened on Good Friday. Because the lamb who was slain is the lamb who is still on the throne. That's the message of the book of Revelation. 
It's the reality of the cross. But what John says is that that same Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, reigns now over the forces of evil that are loose in our world in the same way that he reigned on the cross. Ultimately, all that is evil and destructive will come under the power of the cross, the sovereign power of God, to its final destruction. So nothing can now happen, not even the most fearsome evidence of human disobedience and its nemesis, which cannot be woven into the pattern of God's gracious, redeeming purpose. That's the power of the cross. And that's our first point. The king is dead. And that act of unimaginable human and satanic evil and intention was also at the same time the outworking of unimaginable divine love and sovereign grace. Because through the instrument of that evil act, God in Christ was bearing the judgment and wrath of God himself, but bearing it in the person of God's own Son, bearing it in our place, bearing it for our sake. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, says Paul in Second Corinthians. But we have to move on. We have to move on to what Peter says next, because it's there in verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, says Peter. The Lord is risen. King is dead. Long live the king. Now, when those words are announced, as Charlie reminded us right at the very beginning of our service, they refer, of course, to two separate people, don't they? The king or queen who has just died, on the one hand, and the new king who now reigns in his or her place. Two different people, one dead, one alive. (laughs) But the wonderful thing, the glorious, surprising thing is that in this case, those two proclamations can be made about the same person. Except that, of course, the first one now has to be put into the past tense. The king was dead. Long live the king. Indeed, that is exactly how Jesus himself puts it when describing himself to John in the beginning of the book of Revelation, when Jesus announces it like this. He says, I am the living one. I was dead. And now, look, I am alive forever and ever. Now, we are so used to celebrating that fact. We did it just a few weeks ago at Easter. You know, that the Lord is risen, he is risen indeed, hallelujah. That we might imagine the crowds there in the temple courts on that day of Pentecost also breaking into some great cheer, you know. Oh, wonderful, great news, you know. Good for Jesus, great to have him back. Not a bit of it. Just imagine yourself there again, back in that place, part of the crowd. Remember, this Jesus had been brutally tortured and murdered just a few weeks before in an appalling miscarriage of justice. Even one of the terrorists who was crucified beside him said that Jesus had done nothing to deserve what he got. And you'd been there that day. You were yelling out, crucify him. You were possibly jeering him up on the cross once they got him up there. And now he's alive again? Horrors! The only reason that a murdered man will come back to life, surely, is for vengeance. 
So if, if this is true, if the crucified Jesus is alive again, then that's pretty totally scary. But is it true? I mean, how do you know, Peter? What makes you so sure? And that's where Peter goes next. Because you see, from verse 24 to verse 32 in our passage, can you look there? Peter gives us two reasons why Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then one reason, a third, why he himself was absolutely certain that he had done so. Just look carefully again at verses 24 and 25. You see, Peter builds a very careful case around two explanations. Verse 24 begins with a statement of fact. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. And then comes because, introducing the first reason, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then at the start of verse 25, Peter says, for David said about him. Now, sadly, that little word for has got left out of our English translation in the NIV because actually it does matter. Because it introduces Peter's second reason as to why Jesus had to rise again, namely because the scriptures said so. So let's look at each of those briefly in turn. First of all, the king is dead, long live the king, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him, says Peter, verse 24. Well, why, why impossible? Well, we know from the very beginning of the Bible, don't we, that death, death in its fullest human sense, spiritual death, death in relation to God, that death is the result of sin. Paul makes that crystal clear in a number of places. Here's just a few. Paul says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, death came through sin. In this way, death came to all people because all have sinned. The wages of sin is death. So death is the ultimate consequence of sin. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ bore our sin. Or, as Paul says at the bottom of the quote, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So Jesus, therefore, bore not only bore our sin, he bore the full consequences of our sin in death. He endured death, the death that our sin deserved, and he suffered it to the very depths. But, you see, by doing so, he destroyed the power of death itself. Death is the penalty for sin. Jesus paid the penalty of sin by taking our sin upon himself, for therefore death has no more hold in him, because he dealt with it, because he took sin upon himself. The logic is very clear. Death is dead. Love has won. Christ has conquered. Or as Paul later put it, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, or death, is your victory? Where, or death, is your sting? But of course, Paul didn't stop there, did he? Because the resurrection of Jesus spells new life, eternal life, resurrection life for all who trust in him. So even though we still experience death in this fallen sinful world, God has given us this offer of eternal life through faith in Christ, starting now and lasting to all eternity. So Paul finished that verse, I quoted, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Hallelujah. And later on he writes this, that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Death, we sang a few moments ago, death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live. And later on in this service, we're going to sing at the very end that wonderful hymn, What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. And when we're singing it, look out for this verse. Unto the grave, what will we sing? Christ he lives, Christ he lives. What will the new creation bring? Everlasting life with him. And then Peter gives a second reason why death couldn't hold him, and it's this. He says, for David said about him, and then Peter quotes from Psalm 16. You have it there in those verses uh, from verse 25 to 28. That was a prayer of King David, asking God to spare his life and not abandon him to the grave. That's what it means. But Peter says, you know, David can't have been speaking only about himself. Because the words are quite emphatic. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. But, says Peter, David did die eventually, didn't he? He was buried. So Peter here hears in these words of David the voice of the Messiah, great David's greater son, the Messiah speaking out his confidence in God that God would not abandon his own son to the grave any more than he would abandon his firstborn son, Israel. So the words become prophetic as Peter reads them. Now, the Messiah did indeed die. The king is dead. But God did not abandon him there, leaving him dead and decaying to rot in the grave. No. God raised him up from that. And that's what Peter is insisting here in verses 29 to 31. It's as if Peter says to the crowd, look, he says, you were all witnesses, aren't you, that David is dead because you can go to the tomb here, his tomb in Jerusalem, and you know he's in there, dead. But, says Peter, we've been to another tomb in Jerusalem, the tomb where Jesus was buried. And he's not there. The tomb's empty. Because God is raised from the dead, and we are witnesses of it, he says. That's his third reason. That's why he's so sure, because he's witnessed it. We've seen him, we've touched him, we've eaten with him. And God has done all this, says Peter, in order to fulfill the words of Scripture that were spoken by David. God raised Jesus from the dead because the Scripture must be fulfilled. Or rather, to put it the other way around, it's the Scriptures, the Old Testament, which provided the script, as it were, for Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Like Paul can say in 1 Corinthians that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And he doesn't mean, as you can read in Mark's Gospel, because it wasn't written by then, he's meaning the Scriptures of the Old Testament. He died, he was buried, and he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. And this isn't talking just about random predictions here and there, you know, Bethlehem, tick. This this is not just tick box fulfillment of predictions. We're talking here about the whole plot line of the Bible. The Bible is a script, it is a story, it's a narrative that governs history from beginning to end, from creation to Christ, and from Christ to the new new creation. The Bible is the story of God, the plan, the purpose of God through Israel, through Christ through the mission of the church right up to the very end. And here's the point. Jesus knew the story he was in. He knew the scriptures, the Old Testament as we call it. 
And it was that, the scriptures, that told Jesus the story that he was to complete. It was the Old Testament that declared the promises that Jesus fulfilled. It was the Old Testament provided the identity that Jesus took on himself. And the Old Testament that proclaimed the mission that Jesus has now accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. Jesus knew who he was, why he had come, what he had to accomplish. He knew the story. So therefore, you see, to draw this to a conclusion, Jesus died on the cross, yes, in agony. But he did not die in despair. He died in faith. Faith in the purposes of God faith in the promises of his father concerning himself. He died as all who die in faith in him will die in sure and certain hope of the resurrection because he trusted the one who judges justly. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and God raised him from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. So what does it all mean for us? Let's finish by saying that it means as we draw to a close, that we have a God who is in sovereign control. He was in charge on Good Friday and on Easter Day, and this God who made all things subject to himself, even at the cross, is also the one who is in control of your life and mine. And secondly, because God is in control, we have a Savior who is alive, who defeated death, and who can take us through death to eternal life with him. And because Jesus is alive, we have a future that is glorious in God's new creation. But hang on a minute, Peter. If Jesus is risen, why is he not here himself? Why is it you, Peter, having to tell us all this? Where is he now? Well, you'd have to come back next week (laughs) to find out with Phil Keane where Peter goes next. But now let's pray together, and the band will come up. O God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the Scriptures. We thank you for what they tell us, the truth they convey to us. And we ask that you will burn these messages into our heart. Enable us not only to rejoice in them, but to understand them and then to seek to live them out for your sake.